0: thought about the having the incredible responsibility holding the office of the president of the United States probably the toughest job in the world and on top of that no matter what you do you can't win (laughs) someone is always going to complain someone will always question your motives someone will always disagree and I'm sure there are moments when the president begins to doubt himself his own worth his judgment, his ability to get the job done, and I'm sure there are times when the shouts of the critics overpower the whisper of courage and confidence gives way to self-doubt and despair. We don't see it, but I'm sure it happens. It's inevitable. It comes with the territory. It's happened to everyone who preceded him will happen to everyone who comes after him. As someone has said, the Oval Office has to be the loneliest place In America being the chief includes that occupational hazard now you've heard the cliche it's lonely at the top some years ago I was reminded of this tragic truth through three different perspectives one was historical one was personal and one was biblical the historical reminder came when I reread a chapter in an old book by one of my favorite preachers Chuck Swindoll and he related how he had recently read of a program aired on PBS about the Library of Congress. Not the most captivating program, you'd think, in the world. But nevertheless, what transpired about halfway into the program was emotionally gripping and terribly disturbing. In the middle of this story, about halfway through, Dr. Daniel Borston, the of, Librarian of Congress at the time, brought out a little blue box from a small closet that once held... Uh, Library's rarities the label on the box read contents of the president's pockets on the night of April 14th 1865 since that was the fateful night that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated everyone's view every viewers attention was riveted and seized Boorstin then proceeded to remove the items that were in the small container and display them on camera and there were five things in the box. A handkerchief embroidered A. Lincoln, a country boy's penknife, spectacles case repaired with string, a purse containing a $5 bill, Confederate money, by the way, <laughs> and some old and worn-out newspaper clippings. The clippings said borston were concerned with the great deeds of abraham lincoln and one of them actually reports a speech by john bright which says that abraham lincoln is quote one of the greatest men of all times unquote now today it's common knowledge that he was a great man the world now knows that british statesman john bright was right in his assessment of lincoln but in 1865 Millions shared quite a contrary opinion of him. The president's critics were fierce and they were many. His was a lonely agony that reflected the suffering and turmoil of his country ripped to shreds by hatred and a cruel, costly war. Now, there's something touchingly pathetic in the mental picture of this great leader seeking solace and self-assurance From a few old newspaper clippings as he reads them under the flickering flame of a candle all alone in the Oval Office remember this Swindoll says loneliness stalks where the buck stops now for me that historical reminder paved the way to a personal reminder that no matter what kind of leadership position that you're in Whether you're a president, a policeman, a pediatrician, a pastor, a pulpit helper, or a parent. How do you like those for (laughs) peas? There are times when you feel painfully inadequate to do the job that you face day in and day out. Am I right? Sometimes it seems that there's too much responsibility and not enough strength. And we come up against the truth, as one man put it, that days of maintenance are far more in number than days of magnificence. It's true. There are times when we simply feel tired and alone and unable to go on, and that has not only happened historically, it's not only realized personally, but it occurs spiritually as well. And as a pastor, I know that it happens all too often within the ministry of the church at large. Peter Drucker, the late leadership guru, once said that the four hardest jobs in America, see if you can just imagine what they are, the four hardest jobs in America, not necessarily in order, he added, are the president of the United States, a university president, a CEO of a hospital, and a pastor. You don't have to look far to find the statistics to back that up, actually. Here are some from an article on the ironically named JoyfulMinistry.com website. I say ironically because this is where these statistics came from. 50% of pastors feel unable to meet the demands of the job. 90% feel they were inadequately trained to cope with ministry demands. Seventy percent say they have a lower self-image now than when they started. Seventy percent do not have someone they consider a close friend. Fifty percent have considered leaving ministry in the last three months. That brings me to the third reminder that I had. The biblical one. The reminder that God's answer to this predicament that leaders find themselves in is another aspect of the Holy Spirit's ministry. The ministry of shared responsibility. This is an aspect of the Holy Spirit's ministry that we normally teach from the New Testament, especially in the area of spiritual gifts. However, today I want to briefly look at how God clearly illustrated the Holy Spirit's involvement in shared responsibility in a church, in the church, through an Old Testament event. In the life of another lonely leader Moses I want you to turn in numbers chapter 11 what happened here in the midst of his leadership outlines the truth that the spirit empowers numerous men and women in the church to share the responsibility of leadership and in the final analysis that spirit empowered ministry of shared responsibility is absolutely indispensable to the church, indispensable to the church. Numbers chapter 11, let me read a few verses for you. First, first verse and down to verse six. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord, burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. The people therefore cried out to Moses and Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died out. So the name of that place was called Taberah because of the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble who were among them and had greedy desires and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There's nothing at all to look at except this manna. Skip down to verse 10. Now Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families. Each man at the doorway of his tent and the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly and Moses was displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, why have you been so hard on your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of all this people on me? Was it I who conceived all this people? Was it I who brought them forth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing infant to the land which you swore to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all this people? For they weep before me saying, give us meat that we may eat. I alone am not able to carry all this people because it's too burdensome for me. So if you're going to deal thus with me, please kill me at once if I have found favor in your sight and do not let me see my wretchedness. The Lord therefore said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people, and their officers, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. Then I will come down, and I will speak with you there, and I will take of the Spirit which is upon you, and I will put him on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you will not bear it all alone. Now skip down to verse 24. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. Also, he gathered 70 men of the elders around the people of the people and stationed them around the tent. And the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him, and he took of the Spirit who was upon him and placed him on the 70 elders. And when the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied. But they did not do it again. But two men had remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad, and the name of the other, Medad, and the Spirit rested upon them. And now they were among those who had been registered but had not gone out to the tent, and they prophesied in the camp. And so a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad, they're prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. And Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them, and then Moses returned to the camp, both he and the elders of Israel. Neat story. Would have been interesting to have been there. When it comes to effective ministry in the body of Christ, the church, and especially as it relates to this area of shared responsibility, I think Warren Wiersbe's words strike a piercing chord. He said the ministry of the Holy Spirit is not a luxury it is an absolute necessity. A shared responsibility, first of all, relieves discouragement in God's leaders. It relieves discouragement in God's leaders. There's this old story about a mother who walks in on her six year old son and finds him sobbing on the floor. It's in a heap. What's the matter? She says. I've just figured out how to tie my shoes. Well, honey, that's wonderful. Why are you crying? Being a wise mother, she recognizes his victory in the Ericksonian struggle of autonomy versus doubt. She says, you're growing up, but why are you crying? Because, he says, now I'll have to do it every day for the rest of my life. (laughs) Some days that's how pastors feel. Sundays come with amazing frequency and regularity. (laughs) They don't stop. And then there are weddings and funerals and meetings and counseling appointments and small groups and hospital visits and prayer needs. Not to mention the people you need to evangelize. And when we lose focus and get burned out, we tend to start to see only the negatives. And the complaints of the people ring in our ears. And the frustration builds. And the discouragement breeds depression. And making it until bedtime becomes the primary daily goal. Some of you mothers of young children, you know what that's about. And it's not just, so it's not just pastors that feel it. Anyone with responsibilities deals with this. Parents, teachers, managers, hotel managers, Sunday school teachers, worship leaders, anyone in ministry can relate to Moses' lament. We sometimes find ourselves saying the same impassioned words as Moses did in those verses that we just read. Why me? Why have you put me in this position? I never asked for it, so why? These are your people. You gave birth to them. You made promises to them. And now they're complaining to me, about you. What am I supposed to do? I'm not you. I can't bear the burden of these people alone. It's too much, too heavy. If that's the way it has to be, God, do me a favor now. Kill me now. That's what Moses said. Kill me now because I don't think I can take the end result of all of this. And you'd be surprised as to how many Christian leaders talk that way. I read this week, again, 1,500 pastors leave ministry each month due to either moral failure, spiritual burnout, or contention in their churches. You understand what that means, practically speaking? That means that every hour of the traditional work week, almost nine pastors somewhere are leaving their ministry post. Every hour, nine pastors. 80% of seminary and Bible school graduates who enter the ministry leave the ministry within the first five years 70% 70% of pastors fight depression. And they struggle with the same issues that Moses struggled with. Number one, loss of joy. Loss of joy. I, I read an old story one time about a minister who daily went down to the railroad tracks at the center of town and cheered uproariously as the train drove past. And when asked why he did that, this was his reply. It's the one thing I don't have to push. Laughter That guy was so wearied with pushing programs and prodding people and preaching on commitment that he relished the thought of something that made progress all by itself. Loss of joy, loss of energy. Moses was burned out. Loss of focus. Look at verse 14. I alone, he says, am not able to carry it. He forgot the truth that the Lord had to remind him in verse 23. Is the Lord's power limited? He wasn't doing it alone. It was God's power. Loss of confidence. Verse 14 again. I am not able. Loss of direction. He no longer was pressing toward the goal. Instead, he wanted relief. He wanted to die. He exhibited all the marks of deep, deep depression. He was not unlike countless other spiritual leaders in Scripture who needed relief and support. You can look them up. Read about their ministries Joshua, Jeremiah, Job, Jonah, David in the Psalms. They all experienced it. And the big one, the one we always remember Elijah. Turn to 1 Kings 19 for a moment. 1 Kings 19. You remember this situation? Elijah's doing all this ministry, and he gets a threat from Jezebel. He comes to a cave in verse 9 and lodges there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? He said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And notice the words I alone am left. And they seek my life to take it away. So God said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. And the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of gentle blowing. When Elijah heard it, He wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. The sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Notice what the Lord says. Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And then he gives them a charge to go do ministry. But then he gives them, he gives them encouragement in verse 18. He says, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel. All the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. See, Elijah thought he was alone. God knew otherwise, right? Now, listen in scripture is long but the truth is apparent. The cost of leadership is high, and the spiritual leadership is not immune to the temptation to throw in the towel. Listen to what President Kennedy said at the height of the Cold War. He said, we sometimes chafe at the burden of our obligations, the complexity of our decisions, and the agony of our choices, but there is no comfort or security for us in evasion, no solution in abdication, no relief in irresponsibility. That is equally true in the church as well. And the lack of understanding in some churches regarding spirit, shared spiritual responsibility has left its tragic toll. A long list of worship leaders and, and pastors, teachers, elders, helpers, etc., who are overburdened and stressed out with putting out fires and hearing people's complaints that they have long since given up leading and have only started maintaining. That's not ministry, is it? But the good news is that God always provides the answer. Amen? And in our case, as the New Testament body of Christ, just as it was in Moses' wilderness community, the Holy Spirit's ministry of empowerment to share the load is available. Initially, it relieves the discouragement in God's leaders because essentially it results in the divine distribution of God's work. Divine distribution. Verses 16 and 17, back in Numbers 11 again. The Lord says to Moses, gather for me 70 men from the elders. Bring them to the tent. Let them take their stand there with you. And I'm going to come down and speak with you there, and I'm going to take the spirit that's upon you, the same spirit, and I'm going to put it on them so that you don't have to bear it all alone. Now Moses, typically, he had grounds for his frustration. The burden absolutely was too much for one man, and God knew that. That's why I believe that God viewed Moses' words of lament differently than the people's murmuring over the food. You see, Moses' lament was a cry for help while the belly aching of the people was rooted in unbelief. Total difference. Moses wasn't tired of his call as a leader. Rather, he was exhausted and unable to carry the load. His was a plea for relief and support. And what resulted from that was God's plan to restore him and sustain what was going on in Israel. God's plan was and is shared responsibility. God's power was and is the strength of His Holy Spirit. Amen? Now listen, that same Spirit that was given to Moses would be given to the 70 other elders, qualified leaders to share in the work, balance the load, not to take it away from Moses, not to create a power struggle or to challenge Moses' leadership or authority, but to share the responsibility Note the wording here, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so you shall not bear it alone. That's the idea behind Paul's explanation of the body of Christ in the New Testament. Each individual member having gifts which enable the body to grow healthy and strong, no burnout, no overstressed, overtaxed members, shared responsibility. Let me read it to you out of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to read it to you out of the New Living Translation that you can follow along in your Bibles if you'd like. Now there are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but it is the same Holy Spirit who is the source of them all. There are different kinds of service in the church, but it is the same Lord we are serving. There are different ways God works in our lives, but it's the same God who does the work through all of us. It is the one and the only Holy Spirit who distributes these gifts. He alone decides which gift each person should have. The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up only one body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, some are free, but we have all been baptized into Christ's body by one Spirit, and we've all received the same Spirit. Yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. But God made our bodies with many parts, and he has put each part just where he wants it. This makes for harmony among members so that all the members care for each other equally. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. If one part is honored, all the parts are glad. Now all of you together are Christ's body, and each one of you is a separate and necessary part of it. Note the similarities here between the New Testament and what's going on in the Old Testament. The gift of the Spirit was imparted by who? By God. It was a means of relief to Moses and what else did it do? It enriched the people. It unleashed the people. That's what shared ministry responsibility is about. Charles Osgood told a story of two ladies who lived in a convalescent center. Each had suffered an incapacitating stroke. Margaret's stroke left her left side restricted, while Ruth's stroke damaged her right side. Both of these ladies were accomplished pianists, but had given up the hope of ever playing again. The director of that center, smart guy, sat them down at a piano and encouraged them to play solo pieces together which they did, and this beautiful relationship developed between the two of them, and they played. That's the picture of the church needing to work together. What one member cannot do alone, perhaps two or more could do together in harmony. And that's the point. That's what it's about. It initially relieves discouragement in God's leaders and essentially results in an even distribution of God's work. But shared responsibility also releases God's people for God's service. And that's what was happening here in verses 24 and 25 in Numbers 11. When Moses uh, obeyed the Lord, brought the people around to the tent, the Lord came down, spoke to Moses, and he took of that spirit that he had placed on Moses and put him upon the 70 elders. And the result was that they began to prophesy. God answered Moses' prayer. The same spirit that was operating in him to lead the people was given to the 70 elders by God's own hand. Now the spirit wasn't diminished in Moses, but it was ignited in others. It's like taking a candle, like we do on Christmas Eve here, And lighting everyone else's candle off the one. It doesn't diminish the flame in the first one, does it? But it brightens the room. And a whole lot more light and fire takes place. The intensity of that candle does not diminish or decrease in intensity. But increases by extension. A thousand candles lighted from one flame doesn't lessen the one while it communicates light to the rest. And that's how God works with the Holy Spirit. And in this particular case, they were equipped for God's purpose and for the benefit of His people. Jesus did the same exact thing in the Gospels. Friends, we have been ignited by the same Spirit. Amen? Amen. The same Spirit. The light's been multiplied what are you gonna do with it what are you gonna do with it is there evidence in your life that you've been ignited anybody screaming fire when they get around you they should be the evidence for the 70 was that they prophesied now it's difficult to identify just exactly what that was Some say it was similar to what happened in the New Testament when the various groups of people in the book of Acts received the gift of the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues. Others say that they may have erupted in praise and similar ecstatic expressions. Whatever it was, the point isn't that. The point is that it identified them as being empowered by the Holy Spirit. It was evident The evidence of your empowerment when you become ignited by the flame of the Spirit will equally be apparent to those around you. How? Through a changed life, a new zeal, new abilities, gifts that will not only enable you but encourage you to share the responsibility of God's ministry. Don't be fooled. The kinds of manifestations of the Spirit that occur in us, while they may look different in character than they did in the book of Acts Or back here in numbers are no less dramatic and no less significant they are the visible and definitive evidence that God has endowed not just leaders but all Christians with the Holy Spirit who will share in the responsibility of carrying out the work of God God called Moses and you know most of the time when people are confronted with this kind of thing what's the first response oh not me I don't have the ability. I can't do it. I'm so inadequate. Really, think about it. God called Moses, go to Pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth, tell him to let his labor force leave without compensation to worship a God he doesn't believe in, right? Then convince a timid, stiff-necked people to run away into the desert with you. That's your calling. And how did Moses respond? Here I am, send Aaron, right? That's how he responded. God called Jonah, go to Nineveh, the most corrupt and violent city in the world. Tell its inhabitants who don't know you and won't acknowledge me to repent or die. Jonah said, when's the next whale leaving in the opposite direction? Right. God called Jeremiah to preach to people who wouldn't listen. It was so hard and Jeremiah cried so much that he became known as the weeping prophet. How would you like to have that job title? Who wants a business card that reads the sobbing CEO <laughs> or the depressed dermatologist? Now, you want a card like that? Now, as a rule, the people who we read about in scriptures who were called by God all felt inadequate. When God called Abraham to leave home or Gideon to lead an army or Esther to defy the king or Mary to give birth to the Messiah, their initial response was never, yes, I'm up to the challenge. I think I can handle that. No, the first response to a God-sized calling is generally fear. It's fear. Henry Blackaby writes, some people say God will never ask me to do something I can't do. (laughs) He says, I have come to the place in my life that if the assignment I sense God is giving me is something that I know I can handle, I know it's probably not from God. The kind of assignments that God gives in the Bible are always God sized. They are always beyond what people you and I can do because he wants to demonstrate his nature as God. They sang it this morning. I will not share my glory with another. It's his strength. It's his provision. It's his kindness to his people and to a watching world. This is the only way that the world will come to know him as they see his power working in you. And in me and they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it can't be you or me that same spirit now that surged through Moses also gave authority to the 70 that same spirit that equipped them is the same spirit that descended on the group of disciples in the upper room on the day of Pentecost That's the same Spirit that has called me to be a pastor and a teacher and has also called you to some ministry in this body if you are a follower of Christ. The same one. Does that excite any of you? It's the same Spirit. It's the Spirit of Christ. And that can be taken even one step further. His Spirit not only empowers others in this local church to share in the kingdom work, but others outside this church as well. Other denominations, really. People who worship differently than you and I might. People who pray in a different manner than you and I might. Now please don't misunderstand. I'm not condoning unbiblical practices or things that go beyond the boundaries of Scripture. I'm talking about the ability to accept practical and cultural diversity in other Christians. And we need to do that. Don't confuse unity with uniformity. Oneness doesn't mean sameness. The church is not unified because we all become like each other. The church is unified when we all become like Jesus. If there's anything we need to realize, it's that shared responsibility in the church means a diversity of methods which is carried out by the same spirit. And some people just won't accept that even well-meaning Christian leaders have trouble with this one and need understanding here. That point's not ignored in this text either. While the ministry of shared responsibility initially relieves discouragement from God's leaders and essentially results in the distribution of God's work and ultimately releases people for God's service, often shared responsibility is resisted by human intolerance. Verses 26 And following here in Numbers 11, those two men that had remained in the camp, Eldad and Medad, they didn't come to the service, but the Spirit rested upon them as well, right? And what happened? A young man ran and told Moses and said, they're prophesying in the camp. Joshua, the son of Nun, said, stop them. This whole text is so commonplace, isn't it? Man's plea for relief, followed by God's plan to restore, God's spirit's release, people respond favorably? No way. Controversy immediately. Why? Because two of the 70 didn't make it to the worship service. Yet they still got the blessing. What was the reaction? Stop them. It seems that for one reason or another, Dad and dad they had to have been brothers. I mean, who would have names like that? El Dad, Me Dad. Couldn't make it to the gathering. They were initially registered as part of the 70, but for some reason, not stated, they didn't show up. But to everyone's surprise, the Spirit rested upon them where they were. I want to tell you that God's Spirit is not restrained by geographical proximity. Not at all. And when God designates a person for service, there is no escape. Think Jonah here. Right? No escape. Don't care how far any other direction you run. When the Spirit came upon them, they started prophesying right where they were and it created a stir. You know, in Joshua's reaction, got to give it to him. He was loyal to his leader. Right? Same as some people in the church, better stop him. Literally, the word is emphatic here in the original language. You could say, Joshua said, shut them up. Because they're operating outside of our jurisdiction. They'll probably start drawing people away from you, Moses, and start their own group. They're not doing it the same way we do it. I love Moses' response here. Absolutely love it. He was so confident, so humble, so direct, so calm. Would that all the Lord's people were prophets that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. That should be our response. You know why? Because the Lord did put the spirit upon all Christians, all who believe in Christ. Joshua's motive was noble, but his fear was unfounded. See, Moses, he wasn't concerned about a coup, and he wasn't on a power trip. He wasn't afraid of losing control because he knew that God was in control, right? His view was absolutely biblical. And the more people the Spirit empowers for ministry, the better, the more God will be glorified. If it's not the Spirit doing it, then guess what? It's gonna be exposed soon enough. You don't have to worry about it. If it is, then there's nothing you can do to stop it. Sound familiar? It should. The same exchange took place between Jesus and the disciples in Mark chapter 9, Listen to this. John said to Jesus, teacher, we saw a man using your name to cast out demons, but we told him to stop because he isn't one of our group. Don't stop him, Jesus said. No one who performs miracles in my name will soon be able to speak evil of me. Anyone who is not against us is for us. That's an interesting statement. I'm not commenting on it. I'll let you go home and ponder it. Paul harbored that similar attitude while confined in a jail cell. In Philippians chapter one, Paul says, some here preach Christ because with me out of the way, they think I'll step right into the, they'll step right into the spotlight. But others do it with the best heart in the world. One group's motivated by pure love, knowing that I'm here defending the message, wanting to help the others now that I'm out of the picture are merely greedy, hoping to get something out of it for themselves. Their motives are bad. They see me as their competition. And so the worse it goes for me, the better they think for them. So how am I to respond, Paul says. I love this. He says, I've decided I really don't care about their motives, whether mixed, bad, or indifferent. Every time one of them opens his mouth, Christ is proclaimed. So I just cheer them on. That's a confident man right there in his calling. And a true servant of God rejoices in the spread of the kingdom and the glory of God, not concerned with their own glorious position. Moses was a true servant. He understood fully that his measure before God did not depend on his standing among men. When will we understand that? See, spirit-empowered men and women are not such cheap things that we can throw them away. If someone else preaches from this pulpit, my prayer for them should be, that they preach brilliantly. And that is my prayer for them. Every time someone preaches here. I want to always encourage others to minister and never feel that my position is threatened. And you, as the members of the body of Christ, should always support those who are given the opportunity to minister in their gifts, whether here or anywhere else in the body. Because that means that we're sharing the load together. This is a family. This is a body. It's not focused on the people up front. It's a ministry based on shared responsibility. Amen? Amen. Shared responsibility is the will of God for his people. It relieves discouragement in in God's leaders. It results in the balanced distribution of God's work. It releases people for God's service. And who are we to resist God's spirit? We need each other. Romans chapter 12, and we'll close. As God's messenger, I give each of you this warning Be honest in your estimate of yourselves, measuring your value by how much faith God has given you. Just as our bodies have many parts, and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We're all parts of his one body, and each of us has a different work to do. And since we are all one body in Christ, we belong to each other, and each of us needs all the others. That's Romans chapter 12, verses 3 to 5. John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd. Right? He started a movie called The Blues Brothers, played in a couple of ex convict wannabe musicians who were trying to raise money for an orphanage. Anytime they were asked about their work, they had the standard response what was it? We're on a mission from God, right? They always said it as if they believed it. The very idea that two inept, unworthy human beings could be on a mission from God was, of course, the central joke of the whole story. But here's the story of your life and mine. You're on a mission from God. You are, and I am. Either that is true, or you have no purpose, no mission at all. Jesus put it like this. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Others have come before you. Others will come after you. But this is your day. This is your day. If God's kingdom purpose is to manifest itself right now, says John Ortberg, it will have to be through you. God himself will not come and take your place. You are on a mission from God. He has taken of his spirit and he has put it on you. Now let me ask you, have you figured it out yet? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the Holy Spirit of promise, for the power and the gifts of your spirit. Lord, we've been on a long road in a journey with this series of learning about your Holy Spirit. And there may only be a couple of messages left to this series. Yet it's an ongoing lifetime of learning about you. May your spirit ignite us. May the evidence be within us. And may we go out of these doors knowing that you have given us a mission to accomplish should we choose to accept it. May we accept it and rely on your strength to get it done so that one day when we meet you face to face, we'll be able to celebrate together and hear those words. You did a good job. Well done. Enter into the joy of your master. This I pray in the name of Christ, our precious Lord, and our Savior to the end. Amen.